Hey, welcome to Optimize Your Body with Martin Silva, where we talk raw, uncut facts to truly help you optimize your body. Hi, Glenn. So thank you for joining me. I'm aware it is around about 10 p.m. over there in uh, in Florida. Is, is that where you're based, Glenn? That's where I'm based, and that's what time it is. Wow. I appreciate this. This is a, a late one for you, right? But not really, because <laughs> you're used to it, well, as you said. I, I, I'm not that old yet. I, I could stay up. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's great I'll, I'll be 55 on monday so wow uh, yeah yeah but obviously you know you're feeling good you're feeling on on top of your game with your health glenn i i still have all my teeth and hair so i'm oh, doing okay well, that's really good going i can see yeah. on the uh, on the profile picture here yeah you, you know you're doing all right could be a lot worse glenn <laughs> <laughs> that's true uh yeah just- La- ladies ladies that's it no i just wanted to um yeah just to quickly ask you if you could uh if you could just tell us your story who you are and and what you're about glenn so i'm a psychologist by training and i had a dual career because i never had kids and i didn't commute my my ex-wife traveled an awful lot for business so we couldn't have kids. So I had a lot of time for two careers and I did a lot of consulting with, um, big food companies, big pharmaceutical companies. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war. I'm not really a fan of those companies anymore, but, but anyway, it's, it's all relevant as I tell you the story later on. Mm -hmm. What's, what's really more important is that I'm not just a psychologist who set out to work with overeaters. I'm a guy that had a really serious overeating problem myself for, for more than 30 years. I, I probably started when I was around 17 and I figured out that if I worked out for several hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. Cause I'm, I'm six, four, I'm reasonably muscular just genetically. And, um, you know, I could have five or 6,000 calories a day. No problem. If I did a two hour workout every day. Mm-hmm. And so if you've ever been to the supermarket in Long Island and you found they were out of pop tarts or pizza, then I'm probably the reason why. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, um, when I got a little older and you know, 22, 23, and I went to graduate school, I suddenly didn't have the time to do it anymore. I was driving two hours in each direction to get to graduate school. I was married and, you know, I had responsibilities and practice and I, I had school to contend with it. There was so much to deal with that I couldn't work out for, gosh, maybe a half hour, twice a week, not two, three hours a day. But I found I couldn't stop thinking about food. Mm. I, it's like the foods had a life of their own. And I'd be sitting and working with a suicidal patient and I'd be wondering, well, when can I get the next pizza? Or what, you know, what, when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the daily tray into it. How can I do that? Right. So I went the psychological route to try to solve it. I'm, I'm from a family of 17 therapists, my dad and my mom and my sister and my, my stepbrother and my stepmom, my, I'm sorry, my, my, um, brother-in-law, my stepmom, my stepdad, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, everybody in the family, is a therapist of some sort or another. And if something breaks in the house, everyone knows how to ask it, how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. And that, that was my, 
that was my life growing up. So coming from such a deeply psychological family, I went the psychological route to try and fix my eating problems. So I, I saw the best psychologist myself, saw the best psychiatrist. I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I even conducted a 40,000-person study myself on the internet back, back in the days when clicks were cheap and it was possible to get people to your site for a penny or two each. Mm. I, um, and it was all with the theory that if I could figure out how to fill the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep filling the hole in my stomach. Like if I could love myself thin in some ways, then this would all go away. Mm. And, and it just didn't work. And I'll, I'll tell you what brought me to a different conclusion. There were three things, but I'll tell you what the conclusion is up front. The conclusion I eventually came to was that rather than trying to love yourself thin, overcoming overeating was more like capturing and caging a rabid animal or becoming the alpha wolf in your own brain. Uh, thinking of the reptilian brain, which is the seat of food addiction, as the challenger for leadership, the lizard brain, and thinking of the rest of my brain as my human self, which had to be more alpha. And if you think about what the alpha wolf does when it's challenged for leadership in the pack, it doesn't say, oh, my goodness, someone needs a hug. It says, you know, grr, step out of line and I'll kill you. And I came to the conclusion, which is what eventually worked for me, that I needed to be superior to those drives to overeat. There are three things that brought me to that conclusion. One was I recognized from all the corporate consulting that I was doing that there were overwhelming forces aligned against us in society designed to get us to overeat. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in the big food industry is that they are engineering these food-like substances, which are hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and salt and excitotoxins. And they're designed to hit our bliss points without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result, of course, is that we just keep eating them. We're, we're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. Well, there are these fat cats in white suits with mustaches that are laughing all the way to the bank. That's, mm. that's one overwhelming force aligned against us, right? Mm. Then the advertising industry spends millions, if not billions of dollars to convince us that these things are necessary for our survival that we really need these things, that they're good for us. Um, I remember working with a major food bar manufacturer who told me that the most profitable insight they ever had was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead. They made the packaging look really vibrant and colorful and, and diverse. And if you see a bunch of diverse, vibrant colors in nature, you're probably seeing the ingredients of a salad right? Mm. Like green, yep. Lettuce, yep. green lettuce. Yeah. Blue, 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 blueberries and, you know, purple cabbage and yellow carrots. And it signals the availability of a diversity of nutrients that, you know, on an evolutionary basis, there's a reason why we respond to that. But what this advertising exec was telling me was that, no, we actually took the vitamins out. We just made it look like they were in there. Mm. And I said, is that legal? He said, you bet your ass is legal. And I don't mean to single out that food bar manufacturer because that happens all across industry and packaging. 
And then they spend all this money to beam five to 7,000 messages about food at us every year through the internet and the airwaves. Maybe a half dozen of them are about eating more fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And yeah. And, and then the addiction treatment industry says that we can't put it, even if we wanted to, the best we could do is abstain one day at a time. And that if we're having trouble, it's because we're sick. Mm. And, and so I thought to myself, how could anybody eat well? How, I mean, yeah, it's true. Yeah. No, I totally, totally see where you're coming from. Yeah. I just wanted to just say on that point that the obesity rate, I mean, in America, the kind of food industry is, is so terrible. I mean, in Australia and, and UK, uh, obviously it's, we, we are in a similar situation in terms of the obesity rates, but not quite there. Um, America are, are definitely the sickest nation on the planet, pretty much. And a lot of that is because the, the, the food industry is so corrupt there as well, right? I mean, some of the chemicals and foods and stuff, uh, sorry, chemicals and, uh, poisons, if you like, they get away with putting in into foods it's just unbelievable because there's a lot more regulations uh like i said i'm from the uk so in the uk and australia but yeah i think that that plays a big part in it as well don't you think glenn i think it plays a, an extraordinary part in it yeah mm. yeah the, the forces are lend against us it's but the, there are defenses there are ways to overcome it to, when you know what's going on and you recognize that um you don't have to just be a mindless little robot and unconsciously respond to what they're targeting at your lizard brain. You can make very specific decisions and uh, it just requires a little bit of thinking beforehand. Definitely. And it's almost like even myself, you know, I grew up eating a lot of uh, processed foods. I think it's pretty much the norm now in uh, westernized countries, but I actually, you know, used to like, like basically our brains, what I was trying to say is our brains have essentially uh, almost been kind of taken over or hijacked, right? From these foods, because we, we kind of grow up eating, you know, cereals, refined sugars and stuff, thinking it's, it's pretty normal. And then um, what, what I find is with, I found it with myself and also with people like coaches, people generally tend to consume quite a lot of processed foods nowadays, right? And to actually uh, build a healthy relationship with food and, and getting in tune with the signals as far as, you know, eating based on what your body needs or eating intuitively. It's, it's a journey, right? And, um, I'd like, I'd like you to talk to us a little bit more about your journey from, from fat to thin, if you like, because, uh, it seems you built a, a healthy relationship with food, but, um, obviously it wasn't always that way, right, Glenn? Yes, and I didn't build it in the way that you might think. Can I just say what? Can I say one thing about the hijacking of our? Of course, survival drive? of course, I'd love you to. So the, there was a series of studies in the late fifties and sixties, beginning with two psychologists named Milner and Olds. And what they did was they took rats originally, and then some higher mammals, and they implanted electrodes in the pleasure center of the brain, and then they wired those electrodes to a lever that the rats could press themselves. Do you want to take a guess at what happened? What happened? The rats pressed the lever thousands of times per day to the exclusion of everything else, including their survival needs. Actually, I did hear about that. Yeah. Oh my God. It's crazy. Yeah. That nursing mother rats would abandon their pups to press the lever thousands of times per day. Jeez. So talk about addiction. Right. Rats would crawl over painful electrical grids. Starving rats would ignore their food. What this says is that if you hijack 
the survival drive, you hijack the pleasure centers, then your survival is at stake, mm-hmm. becomes at stake. Now, I don't think we live in a society, I don't think people are implanting electrodes in our brains, but you know, when you can walk out of a McDonald's and see another one across the street, which happens in some cities, or at least another fast food restaurant, I think we can make an argument that there are some chemical electrodes that we're dealing with, and we're certainly, certainly have a lot of those pleasure buttons that are, um, you know, that we've become accustomed to. And so many people say they don't like fruit and vegetables. How am I ever going to lose weight when I just don't like fruit and vegetables anymore? Very true. And so that it's, it's all been hijacked. The good news is that when you disengage from some of those artificial foods, your pleasure centers start to readjust. There's yes. a phenomenon called upregulation and downregulation. And right, so if, if you have a chocolate bar every day, you probably can't taste the natural sweet flavors in an apple anymore. But if you stop having it in six to eight weeks, you'll be able to tell the subtle difference between a gala and an envy and a Fuji apple, and you'll get a lot more pleasure from them. So it's, we're very malleable and we can readjust. It's not hopeless, but you do go through a period where it feels like there's no food pleasure when you try to adjust. Do you want to say something? Yeah, no, no. I'm so glad you said that because what you're saying is, basically certain receptors in the brain will kind of upregulate and downregulate. So if you were to, let's just say, start eating more fruit and vegetables, because I went through this process myself, what happens then is certain certain receptors will then slowly start to kind of upregulate. So then when you do eat something sweet, for example, or I can, I can definitely identify with this because I've done a lot of um, bodybuilding competitions. I've done about eight altogether. And, uh, we can talk a little bit about my, uh, my eating disorder that I had for years as well, uh, maybe soon, but yeah, that's what happens, Glenn. I was, um, for example, when I'd be preparing for a show, I would be in uh, a lot of meat and vegetables, uh, not a great deal of like virtually no processed foods. And then when my show would finish, firstly, I did this kind of went sour. It went quite bad because I would, uh, I would rebound and, uh, and, and go on binge in episodes. But eventually what would happen when I built more of a healthier relationship with food is I would eat, let's just say some strawberries or something or berries after a show. And the taste was just incredible, Glenn. It tasted so good. So is this relative to what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, I see. That's exactly. Cause pe- people think they're going to experience no pleasure anymore, but after a certain period of time, you feel immense pleasure at things you never would have expected to provide that pleasure. And you don't, you don't have to believe me. As a matter of fact, uh, most people won't. For most people, that's going to sound ridiculous. You just have to try it. Yep. You just have to try it for long enough that you can see what, the, um, see what those strawberries taste like in the absence of all of the overstimulation of concentrated sugar that's in our, in our food system. Exactly. And I like the under-eating of, you know, fiber as well and all the micronutrients you're going to get from and chemical compounds from plant-based foods. But I was going to ask you, whilst we're on that topic, um, kind of any advice you'd have for some of the listeners who probably don't eat much vegetables and they, you know, like you said, they might not like the taste. Is there any kind of steps or any uh, any guidance you give people to, to start? Well, you, you could, uh, you know, I'm not a nutritionist. I, I'm not... Uh, legally qualified to give you nutritional advice, but I'll, I'll tell you anecdotally what has worked for me and my clients. You, it, it depends what you are hooked on. So, um, you know, let's say you're hooked on chocolate milkshakes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, 
okay, so there's too much sugar and fat and not enough fiber and, you know, whole, whole foods, vitamins and enzymes and things in that. But you can start to mimic the taste. If you, for example, uh, take about six ounces of spinach, like the organic pre-washed spinach and maybe four or five bananas and some non-alkalized cocoa. I, I got this recipe from Dr. Furman and um, maybe a couple of dates, a couple of whole dates. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's still a lot of calories, but now you're moving in the whole foods direction. You're taking in more fiber. You're not taking in all the, you know, fat and cholesterol from the milk and you don't really have any refined sugar in there. And you've got all the greens from the spinach. It doesn't taste that different than the milkshake. Mm. I mean, yes, you'll taste the difference a little bit, but not, not that much. If you add a little bit of vanilla to it, that's even better. Uh, so what you want to do is ask yourself what, you know, what have I been craving and how could I substitute? Another way to do that is to categorize the foods that you crave into salty, starchy, you know, fat, fatty, sweet, etc., And then try to come up with a substitute that matches those categories. So for example, I was really craving pasta with mozzarella and Parmesan cheese and tomato sauce. And yeah. that is... You know, starchy, fatty, salty, cheesy, right? So I started to substitute brown rice, um, brown rice, tomato sauce made myself with um, tomatoes and dates and lemons, and then some nutritional yeast for the cheesy flavor. And you know what? It doesn't get you high. You don't get the same high that you get from having, you know, spaghetti with tomato sauce and mozzarella cheese and parmesan cheese from an Italian restaurant. But it does kill the craving and it leaves you with a sense of contentment. And so ever so slowly, I just, I just started making those replacements and it worked, worked a lot better for me. Yeah, that makes total sense, Glenn. And, um, hello? Yes, I'm here, but there was a bunch of noise. Sorry, Glenn, I was, uh, trying to fix something on this end, but, uh, I'm back now. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, no, no, I could totally agree with that. <clears throat> um, because that's exactly what it was for me as well. It was, uh, slowly just making a, making a point of just, you know, eat, I actually have always liked vegetables and stuff anyway, but, uh, when I started eating more of them, as you said earlier, you just naturally stop, uh, stop craving, so to speak, the, the, the processed foods as much because your body then it starts to readjust and, and get more in tune with the, uh, with the signals. But, um, yeah, it was a great point. So thanks for that. But, um, I wanted to ask you about overeating because obviously you have your book as well, which is, um, never, never binge again. Is that correct? That's my book. That's your book. Great stuff. So, uh, yeah, obviously overeating now, especially on, on the weekends and stuff. So, so for most people that I've coached and myself included, I still tend to do this a bit, you know, we're social animals. We like to, uh, to socialize on the weekends and that normally involves, you know, eating out, drinking alcohol for a lot of people. Um, how, how do you like with your clients and stuff like that? How do you actually, you know, um, advise them to, you know, to, 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 if they do overeat or how to stop or prevent overeating, you know, on the weekends, for example. Well, is it okay if I answer that by telling you the rest of my journey first, so you understand the, 
unique aspects of this system. Definitely. Sorry, I jumped ahead of it there. That'd be great. That, that, that's okay, because I'll definitely get to that because it's an important question. Um, so I wound up doing this study because I was still taken with the idea that there was some emotional factor that was causing me to overeat. And I, I commissioned this large study with 40,000 people, and I found three things. First, people that struggled with chocolate like I did, because my binges always started with chocolate. They ended with other things. They always started with chocolate. We tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who struggled with crunchy, salty things like chips and pretzels, they, they tended to be stressed at work. And people that struggled with soft, chewy things like bread and bagels or pizza even, they tended to be stressed at home. And I figured that I was now seeing the link and I would, there must be a solution in there somewhere, but I wanted to solve it for myself before I started working with clients. So I talked to my mom who raised me and is also a therapist. And I said, mom, you know, I'm, I'm in a bad marriage. So of course I'm feeling lonely and brokenhearted, but what's, um, you know, what, what could have started this pattern? And she gets this horrible look on her face. And she says, I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, it's okay. It's 40 years ago. I don't care. I'm just trying to figure it out. And she goes, I'm so sorry, Glenn. But when, when you were about one year old in 1965, your dad was being threatened with being sent to Vietnam. He was a captain in the army. And we had another one on the way. And I was scared that I was going to be a army widow with two little kids and nowhere to make an income. And I really thought I was going to have a horrible life. And at the same time, my dad, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison, and he was guilty, and I found out about it, and I'd idolized him my whole life. I had no idea. So I was really, really depressed and really anxious all the time, and mostly I sat around staring at the wall. So I didn't have the wherewithal when you came running to see me, to play with me, or to be fed, or held, or, or, or you know, just nurtured. I kept a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator on the floor. And I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd run over to the Bosco and you'd get it out yourself and you'd suck on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And I, I figured that if, if this were a movie, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and then I'd never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Because now I know the original source. Yep. And, and it is the original source. There's no question that's the original source. But what actually happened when I found that out was that my chocolate eating got worse. Because there was this voice in my head that went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. Mm. And until you can find the love of your life, you got to go out and just keep filling it with chocolate. And... From that, I recognized that the problem wasn't the emotion. Like, I think about the emotion as a fire in a roaring fireplace. If, if you have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace, it becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around and tell stories and make memories. If there are holes in the fireplace and even one ash can escape through, it could burn the house down. And I started to think about it and I said, well, you know what? That voice of justification that says mama left a big chocolate sized hole in her heart, that's poking holes in the fireplace. 
Mm. That's how the ash gets through. Of course. Maybe, maybe it would be easier to take control of that voice rather than put out the fire. Because it yeah. could take years to put out the fire, but I bet I could take control of that voice really quickly. Mm. So here's what I did, and this is a little embarrassing because I'm a sophisticated psychologist with all this consulting behind me. But I decided that that voice was coming from my lizard brain. It's the lower part of the brain that responds to addiction. And that voice was going to be my inner pig. And I decided that I would draw very bright lines, very clear lines in the sand that separated healthy versus unhealthy eating behavior. So Mm. I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. And then I decided that if I heard any voice whatsoever in my head that said, oh, you worked out hard enough, it doesn't matter. Um, You know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and that grows in a plant. So that must be a (laughs) justifying idea. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that was my pig squealing and pig was squealing for slop, for pig slop. And I would say, I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I don't want that. My pig does. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Mm. And as ridiculous as that sound, as crude and primitive as, and embarrassing as it is, that's what started to wake me up and give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision. Mm. And it wasn't a miracle. It wasn't, wasn't like immediately I was better. But ever so slowly, I started to recognize that I had the power to make a choice. And I started making choices. I started making better choices. And, you know, I came down from probably about 280 at my top weight all the way down to 200. And my rosacea and my acne and my psoriasis got better. And my, uh, you know, my triglycerides and my cholesterol came down. And um, I had a pretty slow and steady progress towards where it needed to be. And, um, yeah. And then I, it was never going to be a book. It was just going to be a private thing. I kept a journal for eight years about all the things that the pig said and how it talked me out of eating well. And then in 2015, as I was getting divorced, I was a minor partner in a publishing company and the CEO said we had to write a book to prove ourselves. I said, well, I have this journal I've been keeping and I edited it into a book really quickly and I sent it to him and he called me back back and he said, donuts are pig slop. I don't need donuts. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Hmm. And he proceeded to lose 80 pounds and um, we published it and it took off. And yeah, now I think we'll have a million copies out in um, by April of next year, my guess. Amazing. Uh, Yeah. I'd like to ask you on that point, Glenn, how did you uh, manage to maintain or sustain it? Because the stats are pretty crazy in terms of uh, how many people will lose a significant amount of weight at some point in their life only to gain it back. And I feel like that's a, a problem we're facing now even more so with when you go onto like social media and online, you'll find the quick fixes everywhere you look, you know, four week plan, six week plan, seven minute abs, uh, you know, take this Herbalife supplement or whatever. Um, but how did you actually sustain it? Because I feel like that's a massive battle for a lot of people. Um, yeah. Well, I think the quick fixes make the problem worse. Yeah. Because because I, I, I have the impression that overeating is not really just an addiction to overeating. It's also an addiction to undereating because most overeaters are really good dieters. And so if you think about it, what they're really doing is they're putting their body and their brains 
through a feast and famine cycle. So you're signaling your brain that you live in an environment where at times calories and nutrition are scarce. And if you lived in that kind of environment, from an evolutionary perspective, it would only make sense that the moment that you found calories and nutrition, that your brain would say, okay, you better hoard them because we don't know when they're going to be available again. And so people wind up on this feast and famine roller coaster. I'm too fat. I need to lose weight quickly. Um, I'm going to have, there's this, you've seen the movie, the devil wears Prada. I haven't seen that actually. No, there's a scene where there's, there's this model who's talking about this great new diet. She says, you don't need anything at all. And then if you feel like you're going to pass out, you have a square of cheese and <laughs> that's <laughs> up. Yep. That's kind of the extreme of how people think like they get so scared and so upset about being heavy that they plunge headlong into a, um, into a let's lose weight really quickly scheme mm. and not knowing that they're making the problem worse. And then they bounce back even further and then they want to give up. Mm. And so the solution I found is a very slow and steady weight loss. I create a, I'm a fan of those nutritional calculators online, like Chronometer or my fitness pal. I create a very small deficit and um, I try to lose a pound a week, maybe two pounds at most. And then as you're approaching your goal weight, I like people to go for a soft touchdown. I, I tell them that when we landed a rocket on the moon, we accelerate to 20,000 miles an hour to get there. But then before we get there, we fire our thrusters in the other direction because we can't just crash into the moon at 20,000 miles an hour. And I prefer that if you're losing two pounds a week as you're approaching your goal weight, you know, when you get within about 10 pounds, slow that down to one pound a week and then a half a pound a week so that there's not this abrupt shift from famine into feast mm. so that your, your brain doesn't. I really think the cardinal sin in overeating problems is signaling the brain that you live in the feast and famine environment. So a really big deal is to have a regular, reliable course of nutrition and calories flowing through your body at all times, you know, mm. like three to three to five meals a day. That's, that's what I find works best for binge eaters. Yep. People, sometimes people get very involved in this intermittent fasting and I don't, I don't dispute the medical benefits of it, but I find that if people are really hooked on the binge eating cycle, that it's a bad idea to get involved with intermittent fasting because it really, um, system. Mm, yeah. I would say it's a terrible, I always talk about that. Actually, it's a, uh, it's actually, actually a terrible idea really for, for most people. If they're trying, if their goal is to shift weight, uh, to look at fasting, uh, intermittent fasting as a way to do that is, is just not right. Because what happens is obviously you're just going to deprive your body even more. And unless you've started eating those whole foods or those healthy foods more often, you know, you're just going to end up cementing in those, uh, those habits even, even more. And it's almost becoming a bit trendy now, isn't it? The intermittent fasting, like everyone talking about it but um you know i feel like you have to get to a you know a decent level in terms of eat what you eat first and i like what you said there because it's, it's pretty simple you know eating three meals a day eating three or four meals a day and just focus on eating predominantly uh whole foods so you know good quality uh sources of meats and you know vegetables lots of you know some fruit and just keeping it simple right glenn that, that's my philosophy. I'm a whole yeah. foods plant-based person. My, my, my book is diet agnostic. I, I work with people on all sorts of different diets. It's just mm. about how to create rules and stick to them. Exactly. 
But yeah, back to the uh, overeating thing then, based on what you just said then, people, a lot of people do tend to, you know, overeat. I do it myself occasionally, but um, yeah, I mean, it's quite tough on the weekends. As I said earlier, we get to the weekend, a lot of people out socializing and whatnot, uh, alcohol, you know, eating out. And then it's, it's very tough to kind of balance it out. Um, and, and, and actually, you know, bouncing back from it is actually a lot easier than what people think. Right. But, um, yeah, any kind of tips you have based on your experience for, uh, preventing like overeating on the weekends and, and I guess how to overcome it if you do. What, what you want to do is ask, what you want to do <laughs> is ask yourself, what's the single worst trigger food or behavior that I engage in on the weekends? What, what really begins the, what begins the journey to the abyss? And what's the smallest step that I could take to fix that? that I'd be willing to do that I know would make a big difference. So for example, some people might say, well, you know what? What if I just don't go back for seconds? If I can order anything I want to at the restaurant or have one plate of anything I want to at the buffet, but I just won't go back for seconds. And I've, I knew a guy who lost about 150 pounds doing that. He ate at fast food, food joints. He, he did whatever he wanted to, but never went back for seconds. Or maybe people get so caught up in the moment that they start to eat mindlessly. And so maybe you need to say something like, I always put my fork down between bites mm. or, um, you know, I always take five deep breaths before I sit down for a meal or before I order dessert. You, you make a very concrete rule and then watch your pig try to get you to break it. Watch how your pig will come up with, you know, six, six ways to Sunday all these different reasons why the rule doesn't really hold and you can't do it or you shouldn't do it or you won't do it. And when you hear those reasons, you can do one of two things. You can either dispute them to disempower them. So let's say you hear your pig say, you know, the weekends don't really count. We can start our diet again on Monday. Well, what we know from neuroplasticity research is that you're either always either reinforcing your addictions or extinguishing them. And so if you binge all weekend, it's actually going to be a lot harder for you to start on Monday. Your cravings are going to be more than if you started right now. So that's not logically true that it won't make a difference if you start on Monday. The only time you can really start eating healthy is right now. So you could dispute the squeal. That's one thing you could do. Or you could just remember that it is a squeal. And because the pig, by definition, is any thought, feeling, or impulse which suggests that you're ever going to break your rules again, you know that if it's coming from the pig, you can just ignore it even if you don't know what's wrong with this logic. Hmm. So, And then the last thing that you do is you ask yourself, well, what's the substitute? So when I would crave chocolate, I would run and make myself a banana kale smoothie. So I found that I was craving the, um, the energy. And before I knew it, I was craving banana kale smoothies instead of chocolate. Mm -hmm. So ask yourself, what's the substitute? How do you fill the authentic bodily need? And those things in combination make a really big difference. Definitely, yeah. Breaking those habits is key, isn't it? As you say, just healthy swaps. I think that's a big one, right? Just 
you know, like you said, having a smoothie instead with the nutrients and the fiber and whatnot, which still actually tastes good. It's just the kind of uh, getting through that impulsive kind of move you're going to make when it comes to uh, eating those trigger foods. And um, on on the, the note of trigger foods, <clears throat> there's a few things which I normally recommend to people as far as, you know, trying to eat healthier and, and get in shape. And, you know, buying those kind of foods and keeping them in the house is one uh, area I see people kind of slip up when they're buying, I don't know, things like Ben and Jerry's ice creams and biscuits and stuff, which for me are trigger foods and for a lot of people cause you to overeat. And then, um, you know, another example is like eating in front of the TV because we, uh, we associate kind of eating in front of the TV or going to the cinema with, with eating. So it's programmed into most of us. So those kind of things normally tend to make people overeat a bit more as well. But um, is there any kind of tricks you have when it comes to uh, trigger foods and I guess putting a barrier in the way to, to stop them being as accessible or whatever? Well, um, in the beginning, putting a barrier in the way can be helpful. There's a book called Mindless Eating, mm. which t- talks about the difference between having bowls of M&Ms on the counter versus in the drawers. Yep. And people eat a lot less M&Ms if the bowls are in the drawers rather than on the counters. Yep. So there are external cues like that which can be helpful. And I like to think of manipulating those external cues as habit formation training wheels. There are things that we there are things that we put in place to create a cocoon in which new habits can develop. But ultimately, I want people to be able to challenge those um, triggers because you don't want to have to restrict your world and hide from the stimulation that's all around you. I mean, if I could wave a magic line and want to introduce legislation that would say refined sugar is illegal because I think it's worse than smoking, then I would do that. But that's not going to happen. No. We're going to have this stuff around us. It's only getting worse. That's right. And and so you have to be able to build your confidence that you can face it. I, I once knew a woman who owned a bakery. And she discovered that she couldn't have sugar or flour. She just overate and binged beyond belief if she had even one drop of sugar or flour. And she was very successful. She lost a lot of weight and she figured it out. I said, how in the world do you not only work in a bakery all day, but you own the bakery, so you have to package this all up and sell it and make it seem sexy? Mm. And she said, oh, it's really easy. I just look at that stuff and I say, that is not my food. That is not my food. And what has she done there? She's just created this internal boundary that if she was thinking about it as food, then it was a possibility. But... She thinks of it as not food, and so it's just off limits. And you could, you know, you could put twenty-four jelly donuts in front of her, and she won't touch them because that is not her food. Mm. And so, ultimately, I want people to get to that experience in life where they have such clear lines that they know what they will and won't do. And if something is over the line, then they say that is not my food, and they they don't do it. Right. Yeah, I like that. That's so true. And as you just touched on there, we have more food available to us than any other time in human history, right? Um, we haven't even mentioned 
the likes of, you know, Uber Eats, the fact that, you know, you can literally get food at your doorstep within a few minutes now. So you don't even have to really get off the couch and walk to wherever you're going to walk to get it. You know? I just had a whole session with a woman about that. Yeah. Really? It's, uh, it's crazy. We've got, it's, it's just, uh, like you said, it's only getting worse, right? But I was just going to, I wanted to talk to you a bit more about like healthy habits and stuff that you've had to develop, which you probably have, uh, they're probably, you know, ingrained now, but you know, what I mean by healthy habits is being able to kind of mitigate, you know, cause we are, like you said, we're always exposed to these foods and stuff. And we do want to, you know, it's not to say I eat perfectly all the time, but I just don't, you know, intuitively, I don't really want those foods anymore. Like you said, it's, I guess it's the same as me, really, uh, similar to that woman, you know, it's just, it's just not my food. You know, I connect with how those foods make me feel, but obviously it's probably similar to yourself, but, um, you know, it, t- it takes a while to get to that point, but, um, healthy habits. Um, what I mean by that is just, I always recommend people, you know, to, to focus on daily movements. Cause, um, for example, in America, I think the average American does like under 4,000 steps a day. So I think I saw some sort of stat where it, where it is said that the average American is actually spending more time putting food in their mouth than they are actually moving. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, it goes it's to show. Picture. It's a sad picture, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So just when you get, for example, you get yourself like a wrist device or, or use your phone and track your daily steps to, to build awareness. Cause I feel like that's the first step to progress in kind of any area of life, but especially with, uh, with health and wellness. So, uh, yeah, I mean, healthy habits such as movement and obviously lifting weights, which is something I wanted to talk about, talk about, cause that's my kind of, uh, wheelhouse when it comes to building metabolism up. But, um, yeah, any healthy habits that you've developed over the years, which, or, or with clients that you recommend? I mean, I'm a big fan of exercise classes. Mm-hmm. I find that if I just show up to the class, then I don't have to worry. I don't have to push myself through. They push me through and the class is done before I know it. And all I have to do is show up. And that's been a big help for me. Mm. Uh, I bought a Vitamix and a juicer and a dehydrator. And there are some of the best investments that I ever made. Because I can, I don't really like to eat a big salad. But at a restaurant, I will. But it's not something that I enjoy. Mm. And I can get an awful lot of leafy green vegetables in by putting it in the Vitamix in it. Leafy greens go with just about anything in a Vitamix. So you know, I'll have it with a leafy green fruit smoothie or sometimes I'll add some you know, tomatoes and a little bit of jalapeno pepper and some lemon juice. And you know, I'll have a, my, my version of a V8, V8 without salt. Um, you know, I... I other healthy habits. Let's see. It's been helpful for a lot of people to write a hypothetical food plan for the next day before they go to sleep. And I say hypothetical because I don't want you to feel compelled to eat everything that's on the plan that you planned for the day before. But the process of planning it out forces you to spot troubled areas during the day when you might not have enough to eat or, you know, be able to get out and get what you need and think it through beforehand. And that removes the element of surprise from your pig. And so you're much less likely to binge if you've written out the healthy plan the day before. Mm. So I don't know if those are those the kind of things you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good tip. Yeah. I like that. So I feel like that's where, um, a lot of people tend to come undone. Uh, and that's including myself, obviously, uh, 
I haven't competed for about three years, but right now I'm I'm around about uh, just under eight weeks out from a competition. So I'm going to do another competition. And uh, for me, normally I wouldn't worry about having uh, meals prepped. I'll just, because I, I live near where I work and stuff. So it's quite convenient for me. And I do a lot of intermittent fasting. But right now I've got a, I've got a company, a meal prep company, just preparing my meals for me. So I've got those meals there. Uh, and that way then I don't end up, you know, getting hungry and kind of not hitting my uh, my protein intake and whatnot and just getting enough nutrients in in general so that's that's helped a lot for me but um yeah so i guess that's that's number one really just having your meals prepped and what time you can actually eat them in the day i guess you know structure is important right but um yeah i wanted to uh, ask you about like building metabolism as well because you do um fitness classes um as exercise primarily but um lifting weights obviously like i said this is my kind of area of expertise and um i guess you know building building bodies is is what i do but um the purpose of this podcast is now based on you know making health a priority because um i used to have uh, a binge eating disorder myself uh, as a result of leading up to competitions and whatnot, just uh, cutting back on foods and restricting a lot of foods um, unnecessarily though, Glenn, you know, I was kind of eating like what I thought was right, eating like a a bodybuilder diet, so to speak, which, uh, you know, in reality is not necessary to eat chicken and broccoli every meal. And then I was restricting so many foods that I would just binge. And, um, you know, I came out the other side um, and managed to you know, improve my state of health just by slowly, like we talked about earlier, introducing more vegetables and just getting more in tune with my body and making my health a priority instead of instead of focusing on how I looked, which I feel like, you know, 80% of people I coach as a trainer and online, they want to look better. You know, they want they want to look a certain way. So that's the kind of reality we're at now. But um, what I like is like, you know, your message and there's a lot of great information out there now in terms of getting people to focus on uh, making health a priority. But um, I feel like lifting weights now, especially with all the studies coming out, lifting weights is actually um, vital, really. Strength is the foundation for anything, um, especially when it comes to, you know, reducing the likelihood of sarcopenia as we age, especially for the aging population. As we age, uh, we're more prone to sarcopenia, which is when um, we have muscle wastage essentially. And then that um, you reduce strength and that expose you more to like osteopenia. And, um, and obviously you, you, the heart as well, you know, lifting weights is, is even actually, it's been proven more beneficial than cardio for the heart now because uh, it helps to reduce a certain amount of uh, f- a certain type of fat around the heart. But um, yeah, without going off too much on a tangent, engine um i feel like building metabolism and actually um building muscle um actually um gives people what i like to call it gives people insurance so they can actually you know you can eat more calories like life does get in the way sometimes you know so um it does mean that people can manage their weight and stay healthier when they uh when they focus on building lean muscle but yeah have you got an experience with that at all or you know talking about metabolism and actually uh you know setting yourself up for for long-term success that's not really my expertise. I mean, I, I'm a, I go to CrossFit four times a week, so I've been doing it, but it's not really what I counsel people to do or think something that I've striven, mm. strove. What's, what's the past sense of strive? Oh, um, you know, to, oh, I can't think of the word off the top of the head to, um, oh, I can't really think. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not what I pursued. It's not what I pursued in my expertise. So I don't feel like I can. So you don't promote it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could advise people on that. No, I, I, I see. Um, you know, I, I know that there are different schools of thought on it. I know there's a school of thought that says you don't really want a fast metabolism. 
because that causes other things to grow and causes you to age faster. And then there's schools of thought that says, you know, let's get your metabolism as fast as you can so that you're, you know, keeping your fat low and are less likely to have a heart attack from the, um, all the visceral fat. And mm. so I, yeah. Also, what I meant by that is I meant, um, I should have said like more of a developed metabolism. So, you know, obviously when you, a pound of lean muscle will burn up to about 50 calories extra a day. Um, just by, just to keep that muscle on your body, which is, which is obviously why, you know, you're lifting weights with, with CrossFit, which is, uh, not something, and this is nothing personal, but it's not something I'm, I'm a massive fan of CrossFit, but I'm all for if it gets you moving and, and you enjoy it. Like, that's great. But uh, I just find that, you know, with a lot of people that um, I've, I've dealt with a lot of people who've got injured through it. And, and also, uh, yeah, it's like, I don't feel like it's for everyone, but yeah, obviously if it's going to be exercise you're going to do, and as you say, like if that's something that makes you consistent, that's great. So do you oh, find oh, no, CrossFit has been it's, beneficial it's, for you? It's, it's dangerous. It's, <laughs> it you, is. It's a sport, I, basically. I, I, I'm the old guy in the corner trying not to get hurt. And all the, <laughs> all the guys, they gather around me, they kind of treat me like an uncle, and they make sure I'm safe. So I, I, I've been safe so far. I've been really careful. I've been really safe with it. But I, I do feel like I've developed some functionality that I didn't have before. But I, you got to be really careful. And I, I, by no means do I mean to suggest that everybody should run out and do CrossFit. It's, oh, no, no. I know you weren't saying that. Yeah. No, it's just good to get your take on that because, um, you know, for some people it works, as I say, if, if it gets you going and as long as you're going to be like, you, you seem very self-aware. So you're, you're mindful of the fact that, you know, you're not going to jump in there in the lion's den, so to speak, and uh, start throwing crazy weights around. You're, you're aware that, you know, I've got to just do it my own way kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I guess then just to summarize me, you've covered a lot of great, great stuff there, but, um, I wanted to ask you about, obviously, a lot of people tend to use food as a drug. Now, with, with as you said, with all of these foods available to us, right, and the fact that it's not going to be, you know, you said if you had it your way, you would ban refined sugar. And I guess I would uh, I definitely push towards that as well because, um, you know, it, it causes people to overeat and it gets people hooked and addicted to these foods. And the obesity epidemic is, is higher than it's ever been in any, any time in, in human history. But a lot of, a lot of us tend to use drug, uh, food as a drug, you know, when, when people feel anxious or when they're bored or tired, reach for food to, to take, to take us out of the present kind of thing. Now, it's something I used to do when I was, when I was uh, bingy and I would just start eating something, which was a trigger food, like a pizza or ice cream. And I just wouldn't be able to stop. But um, yeah, what's your thoughts on that? Have you got any, uh, any, any experience with that? People just kind of eating when they feel a certain way. So the common notion in our culture is that we eat for comfort or we eat to numb ourselves out or to escape. Um, and it's true that overeating I'm talking about, it's true that when you overload the digestive system with things that don't really belong in there, that the nervous system doesn't have enough energy to conduct the emotions in the same way. And so overeating has an anesthetic effect on the emotions. So overeating really does numb the emotions, but that's a distraction from what's really going on. And the things that people are overeating on are intense concentrations of pleasure that didn't exist as we were evolving. Um, they, there were no chocolate bars in the Savannah. There were no potato chips in the tropics. And what we're actually doing is getting high with food. And I'd like people to 
flips the paradigm because if you think that you're eating for comfort or you're eating to escape or you're eating to numb yourself out because life is too painful, it's going to lend you to feel sorry for yourself and to keep on binging in order to comfort yourself with that. But if you recognize that you're using food to get high, then most people don't want to think of themselves as a drug addict and they'll intervene and look for the pig and stop it before that, before that happens. So mm. like people to recognize that they're getting high with food and not just, they're not just they're using it to comfort themselves. Exactly. And like, that's the thing. It is no different really to any other drug when we abuse it, right? It's just like anything in life, you know, moderation, especially with those foods, the foods which are engineered, they're engineered to make us, to make us eat more of them and overeat. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's just a case of, uh, us not, well, eating, eating the right foods and, and, like you said, it's it, looking at it, looking at food, especially those foods as, you know, an escape because sometimes it's like, cause we, we don't want to deal with whatever kind of feeling we're feeling. Right. We want a kind of a, a, a short relief from that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. You, you got it. Um, yeah. So I guess that's, that's a wrap then. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate your time, Glenn, but I wanted you to, let the audience know uh, where they can find you and any other kind of, uh, I don't know, whatever platforms you have, Glenn. Well, if you go over to neverbingeagain.com, I've got a bunch of free things that will take you a step further with this. There, click on the big red button. It says more free reader bonuses. And sign up for that. We'll get your free copy of the book, first of all, in electronic format, which is either Kindle, Nook, or PDF. And then we will... Also, you get you a set of food plan templates. We call them starter templates because we want you to adjust them to match your needs. But we created a set of food rules for just about any dietary philosophy, whether you are paleo or ketogenic or vegan or low carb or macrobiotic or high carb, whatever you're doing, point counters, you're, um, you'll find something that will get you started. And then the last thing we have is a set of recorded coaching sessions. These are also free. And the reason I did that is that I know this sounds like a very strange philosophy in theory. You must be thinking, why does Martin have this psychologist on that has a pig inside him? And <laughs> <laughs> what, the, what the hell is going on here? It's actually a very compassionate approach. And I, want you to, I wanted you to hear people transforming their feeling of desperation and hopelessness and confusion into excitement and confidence and hope. So you can find that at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. That's awesome. Just to clarify, we get a free copy of your book electronically if we go to the website. Kindle, Nook, or PDF. Yep. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Great value. Awesome. Thanks, Glenn. So um, I'll think I'll check that out myself then. <laughs> Please do. Please do. If you got any questions, just ask. Awesome. Thanks for your, thanks for your time, Glenn. I really appreciate it. Okay. You too. Have, have a good night. You too. Bye.